Those of you who are parents, those of you who have been parents of young children, or those of you who can remember from your own experience, know that incorporating new foods to a child's diet and to their palate can sometimes make for funny faces as someone is being introduced to new foods because it tastes different. It feels different. It must not be good, the child will conclude. Well, we're in week five of a 10-week series on developing what I'm calling a robust biblical world and life view as we consider and apply what the Bible calls the doctrine of sanctification. And it is possible that for some of you, it seems like new food. It's a different texture than what your palate might be used to. Because in the Southern Bible Belt, and even in our own Presbyterian and Reformed world, it's actually become uncommon for Sunday morning sermons to address the people of God, the church, as the people of God, to feed and nourish and nurture them as the redeemed people that God has said that they are in Christ. And that diet of not hearing about sanctification has not served the church well. It has not produced a healthy, strong, robust church with a biblical world and life view and with an expectation of sanctification. So we should instead think of it this way. In our worship, what we have just done, we have rehearsed the gospel together corporately. In our liturgy and what we have done together, we have confessed our sins and we have heard that those who confess their sins, they truly have forgiveness in Jesus. That's what we believe. And so now what? Now we look to God to feed us, to instruct us, to direct us from His Word, to shape us, to give us direction for the week ahead. And that hope that God would change us and transform us and renew us and empower us to live a new life, you know the other word for that? is the gospel. The gospel has this aspect of both our justification and our sanctification. And too often in our culture, we truncate that gospel. We reduce it to justification and all the beauties of it. But if you heard our series on Hebrews, you're reminded that God is calling His people to be a people. And He gives the power for change. He gives the hope for renewal. He gives the hope that He is rebuilding the ruins that our world knows, and He's doing it through the church. And so for the past four weeks, we've looked at a biblical world and life view, the ruins that affect every one of us with the hope that the gospel has power to redeem those broken things who look to God in faith. 
by the power of word and spirit, there is the hope for renewal. There's the hope for the redemption of our worship, that we might get worship more as we should in our private and public lives. There's hope for our work, that we would not be wrongly driven to prove ourselves through our work, but seek to glorify God in our work. And then last week we heard that there's even hope for our rest, that we can glorify God by learning to practice rest the way He created His people to experience as a good gift. We get all those things wrong. Worship, work, rest, but they're all provisions of God given to us in His Word. And it's right for us to think, as Christians, how do we engage those things in light of the gospel? And now this morning, continuing in this series, talking about God's redeeming broken things, we come to what will be perhaps a little series within a series, and I'm calling it Redeeming Broken Relationships. Relationships, human-to-human relationships, critical, beautiful gift of God at creation. And it all starts with the first man, the first woman, the first marriage, and the family that it would result in. And as you will see, and as you already know, it was beautiful, it was ruined, but there's a hope of redemption. So give your attention this morning as we return to Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book that gives us a lens through which we understand ourselves, our world, and the God who redeems us. Selections from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, 7 to 9, 15 to 18, and 20 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman 
from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of His holy word. Lord, as we consider a holy subject this morning, and as we consider Your great gift and purpose of marriage and family, and how because of sin, what was a source of much joy has become a source of much hurt and disappointment for many, many people. Lord, would you be near to us and show us this morning the healing and hope for our families and for future generations of our families by the power and hope of the gospel applied. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this week's episode of Things Pastor Paul is Trying to Fix, which would make a great little reality TV show series in my mind. Um, so this week, I've told you before, if you were with us, the summertime tends to be a time where broken things are on the radar. Long days, days that run till almost 9 p.m., allow for extra time to do things. So this week I addressed broken lawnmower and a termite-infested, rot-damaged red barn behind my house. And so I had treated the termites. I would had someone treat the termites about six months ago. So now's the time to go in and inspect the damage. How bad is the damage, Pastor Paul? It's pretty bad, but it's not so bad that it can't be redeemed. Okay, so here I'm popping off boards and looking at things, and here's the, here's the imagery I want you to see. There's a foundation, and the timber, the lumber upon it, not all of it, but some of it is unusable. It's rotten, water-damaged, termite-damaged. And it's another illustration for another day, but it is amazing what a termite can do and how they can turn lumber into sand, essentially, dust. And so here I am learning to, or, or not learning, I've had to do it in a bathroom that you've heard about, but learning to sister boards and join things together to fortify what was once strong and now in a condition of ruin to make it strong again to reestablish the strength by bringing in what is needed, right? That's a story of redemption. That's a story of renewal. That's taking something that's broken, something that's rotten to its core, and instead of just putting a match to it and burning it all down, which I have been tempted to do, to say, now wait a minute. There are still bones there. 
there's still something that can be done there. And that really is a picture of the kind of mentality that we're talking about in this series. Sin really has ruined what is good and right and useful, and it's corrupted it. But God has committed Himself to do something about it. And in the passage that we just read from Genesis chapter 2, from those selections from Genesis chapter 2, we see the original good bones, so to speak, of creation. What things were intended to be with our first parents, Adam and Eve. In those verses, we heard that God made man. He made him from the dust. He made him from the dirt of the ground. He breathed breath into him to bring life. He created him in his own image and in his own likeness. That he did it for his own glory. That man might worship God. Which is what we talked about in redeeming our worship. That we would rightly worship the one true God in everything that we do. And then... He would do it through His work, that man would glorify God in the image of God through His six days of labor. And he would get that proportion right, that I am to live for the glory of God through my work. And that was the third thing that we considered. as our six days of vocation and redeeming broken work, learning to glorify God in what He's called us to do. And then for that first man, He gave him the gift and the blessing of rest. That life would not be all work and no play, no rest. That we could then glorify God taking a Sabbath rhythm. And we can't even get that right, we talked about last week. But all of these things are redeemable. God calls His people to redeem and to renew these things, to apply the gospel, the power of the gospel, to live rightly as God has called His people to be. Then, in that same passage from Genesis 2, it says, The Lord saw that Adam was alone, and it was not good. And so He made a companion for him. From Adam's side, from Adam's rib, He created a woman. You may have heard that quote from um, Matthew Henry. It's actually been attributed to several authors Uh, But the latest that I could find in time, going back, the latest I could find is Matthew Henry, where he says this, The woman, Eve, was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. She was not made from his head to rule over him, nor was she made from his feet to be trampled upon by him. But she was made from his side to be equal with him. She was made under his arm to be protected by him. And she was made from near his heart to be beloved by him. Well, that's pretty sweet, isn't it? I kind of like that. I've heard that attributed to G.K. Chesterton and others. uh, But it looks like Matthew Henry may have been the first one to put all those sentences, those poetic sentences together. And that's what the Lord gives us in introducing Eve. He gives us a poem there where the man literally breaks forth in song when the woman is introduced to him. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You have given me a wife. I would be alone in this life. But you made the companion who fits 
me perfectly. And so the Scriptures literally break out in poetry and song to celebrate this first man and this first wife. And in them, we're giving an archetype. We're given a model, a first model of how things were supposed to be. Think of it, women. Every time, a wife, every time you get up, your man breaking forth in poetry and song for you. That's how it was supposed to be. When you entered the room, he couldn't help but sing or write a poem about you. Okay, that's prior to the fall. That's how it would have been. That's not how it is. Now he asks you to do things, and you ask him to do things. But that ideal archetype from Genesis chapter 2 was a team of two persons, man and wife, who were unified in their purpose. They were harmonious in their work together. They had complementary gifts, and they properly fit one another in every way. Physically, emotionally, socially, every category of life, they were made to fit. And in them, we have the first family. The first family, at this point, untouched by sin. One of my professors who had great influence on me in my understanding of all of this was Gerard Van Groningen. And on this subject, he said, A husband, his wife, and their children are called by God to reflect God's intimate relationship within the Trinity and the intimate relationship that God has with His people. They are a covenant family. And you know that language of covenant is biblical language. It's the language of binding promise. It's where we get the, the language in our um, marriages, in our uh, vows, till death do we part. It's beautiful, covenantal, binding language. And the Lord has called marriage to reflect that and His commitment to His people through our marriages. But that's the ideal. That's pre-sin. The tragic event of the fall, what we're told in Genesis chapter 3, again, as with every subject we're considering, it has corrupted the man. It has ruined that man. It has ruined the woman, the wife, and it has ruined the family. Even the fruit that comes from man and wife in the children. Let's read that selection of Scripture, which is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, picking up essentially where we just left off. Now, the serpent, who was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. 
Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm choosing selections from there for the sake of time. So much more could be read and said. But quite simply, what we have here is is the tragedy of the fall. The disobedience of our first parents. And a disobedience that ruined them. It corrupted them. It corrupted their nature. It corrupted all of creation. And it is why you and I were born corrupted with the same fallen nature as our first parents. That's what we believe as a church, that all mankind sinned with Adam and fell with Adam in that first transgression. So what's going on here has been called by some, and I think rightly so, the loss of shalom, the loss of peace in the earth. Cornelius Plantica, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, It's an introduction to sin. He says, Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. God hates sin, not just because it violates His law, but substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. And in this way, many have written about Satan as the ultimate vandal and sin as vandalism. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the most crafty of all the animals the Lord God had made. And Satan uses that serpent. No real explanation is given of that. It's just said that Satan is embodied in the serpent and that he would go forth and be the vandal, 
the one who defaces and destroys what God has created. And he wants to deface it. He wants to ruin it. He wants to corrupt it. He wants to destroy it. There was a story in the news this week you may have seen. I don't have the name of the politician. I don't even remember the state. And I won't mention the political party. But he was caught red-handed for keying a car because it had a rival's a rival political party's bumper sticker on it. And this was a person of a significant standing in a, in a political party. And how embarrassed would he be once he's caught? And he actually lied about it a couple of times. But it's the spirit of vandalism. I see a car. It's a rival to me. I don't like what it is for. So I'm going to take a sharp object, a key, and I'm going to scratch that expensive vehicle and put a line down it to ruin it and to make a point. That is the spirit of vandalism. That's the vandalism of shalom between those two persons. And it's the spirit that Satan brought into this world. I want to ruin, I want to destroy, I want to deface what is valued by my rival and by my enemy. Oh, here's a fun story. Um, I've told this to the youth before. When I was a little boy, I have a memory of my parents must have gone on a date night. Remember, I'm the youngest of three, so I'm forgiven if my memory is ever a little bit wrong. But they must have left my oldest sister at home to keep us. That's because I don't remember a babysitter. And my brother and I, he's two years older than I am, we had some kind of a conflict. And I'm sure I was right and he was wrong. But his response in his anger to me was to run upstairs and to grab my beloved Snoopy wooden little statue I had gotten when I was in kindergarten in Okinawa, Japan. He ran up, he grabbed my beloved Snoopy. He ran downstairs, down a spiral staircase, ran to the carport, opened up the door, and threw Snoopy onto the cement carport floor. And I still have Snoopy. He's not in my study. He's in my study at home. And you can see the chipped feet and the scratches on him. And that's vandalism. That's the spirit of vandalism, right? That there is something in every one of us. I mean, I've done my share of vandalism too. I'll tell you those stories later. But the spirit of vandalism, what sin brought into the earth is I'll ruin something if I don't like it. I'll blow it up. I'll destroy it. And that's what Satan did with our first parents and that most precious gift that God gave them, which was each other and their marriage. Satan sought to vandalize marriage and the family, and it's been the same way ever since. So consider what he does and how he vandalizes the shalom of our first parents and their marriage. Their relationship was immediately challenged because it says Satan approached the woman. He interrogated the woman. He isolated the woman and he dealt with her. That's how he sought to break shalom was to go after the wife, to not approach the husband, but to isolate the wife. But it says that Adam was there. The passage says Adam was with her. And so it appears that while his wife is being interrogated, 
Adam is standing, so to speak, with his hands in his pocket, just standing idly by as a spectator to his wife being interrogated and being tempted to break God's law. Now, through our own ears, you know, we can playfully fill in, well, what was Adam thinking? Well, maybe he was thinking, she's a strong, independent woman. I wouldn't want to interrupt their conversation. That would be rude. So I'll just leave my wife to herself to deal with it, right? Or, or maybe he would say, well, I don't, I don't want to be accused of micromanaging my wife, right? I'll, I'll just let her have her business and, and I'll have mine. You know, fill in the blanks however you wish, but what we have is the man who had been gifted a wife found it very easy to shirk his responsibility and his duty and to hide behind a pine tree in silence rather than rising up and engaging the threat that approached his marriage and his wife. Does that make sense? Now, Eve has her own faults. Uh, all are guilty. They're both guilty. They're both totally guilty, right? So we're not pointing the finger at one gender or another, though they did point the finger at each other in the passage and blame each other. But now Eve is taking on by not deferring to her husband and saying, well, well, wait a minute, there's another one of me, there's the other half of me, let me bring him into the conversation. She deals with it on her own. She is a strong, independent woman. And so the two seem to reverse their roles, neither fulfilling what God has called the other to do. And the result is conflict and it's chaos. Adam blames God for the gift of Eve when he says, the woman you gave me, she's the one who disobeyed. Well, there's your courageous husband, right? Blaming the wife when he's been the silent one. And then the passage goes on in verse 16. As the Lord brings accountability for their sin, and they both are given consequences for their sin, because sin always has its consequences, we're wrong and foolish when we think that it doesn't. But the consequence for Eve's sin is given to us in verse 16 of chapter 3, which I didn't read in the selection, but I'll read it now. The Lord has come and He has brought judgment, and He says to the woman, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth your children. Well, that seems to have proved true. Not from my experience, but from what I'm told. And then there's a second piece to this that maybe isn't as understood. In the, in the form of clarity and judgment, the Lord says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to the husband, to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And if you read different commentaries, even from different traditions, the conclusion to that is mostly in agreement. It seems to be this. From the fall and from sin, you have this tension of role reversal between man and wife. She will have a desire to control her husband, but that's not how God has ordered things. And so she will live in this constant tension of, I don't know, living with this knucklehead who can't get anything right. If he would just live with me, I know better. 
And there can be that unspoken tension in what was gifted to us as a marriage between man and woman. Meanwhile, men are still the same. We still tend to stand around with our hands in our pocket, silent, not leading, not approaching our wife in her time of need, but choosing to, oh, she's a strong, independent woman. Who am I to intervene? Men struggle to be men as God has created us to be. Women struggle to be women as God has created us to be. That is what the fall has done to every one of us. It's produced conflict and chaos. And this has become not the ideal archetype that Adam and Eve were intended to be. This is now the real archetype. This is the pattern that every one of us lives in. Instead of being a team, they are now a pair. They are now finger-pointing and blaming one another. They're confused in their roles. They're uncertain of their fit together. And they each put themselves first. Do you feel the opposite nature from creation and its intended, intended design to the reality of what by instinct we experience in relationships and in the marriage relationship? Marriage is hard. Being a godly man is hard. Being a godly woman is hard. It goes against our fallen nature, and it goes against the culture in which we're living. So I haven't seen it, but there's a new movie out about Barbie. Pastor Paul loves a good Barbie movie. I'm just kidding. Um, I, I did hear and read a review of the Barbie movie. And I'm not going to see the Barbie movie. There are other movies that I will see, but I'm not going to watch the Barbie movie. But the review, which is in World Magazine, and and it's worth looking at or, or listening to. You can do either. Their summary of the Barbie movie is the worldview that it's communicating to little girls about what it is to be a strong, independent woman. And this particular reviewer's comment at the end of his article um, says that the Barbie movie tends to, seems to suggest ignore what you were made to be, girls. Create your own meaning. And if anything ever sounded like our culture, that's it, right? Ignore what God has given us in His Word. I mean, that's outdated. That's irrelevant. That was written in a different culture by an unsophisticated people. We, however, are educated and sophisticated. So, Go create your own meaning of what it means to be man or woman or now anything in between, as if there were things in between. It's chaos. It's conflict in our culture. But let's be honest from our own experience within the church. Marriage is hard. It's not easy. Marriages struggle. Husbands struggle in their manhood. Wives struggle in their womanhood. They both struggle in their relationship with one another. And our children struggle. It's hard to be a child. It's hard to grow up in a household with somebody's rules if you maybe want to do differently. Because you can be a strong, independent-minded person who's told to go create your own narrative. And it's always been hard, both for man and wife and child. Let me remind you that it's just, I think, in Genesis 4, a few verses later, that we see the first child, 
and the first children of Cain and Abel. And what do they do? Cain kills Abel. That's the fruit of sin and the conflict. And so the honest perception of all this for us is that we live in a fallen world. We are fallen people. Marriage is hard. Having God's roles in our lives is hard. And the truth is, most marriages, let me say many marriages, are unhappy marriages. People are not real happy in it. There's a statistic that says that one in four marriages, according to census data, one in four marriages say that they're not happy. It's 25%. I think it's probably higher than that. It seems low to me. I think most marriages really struggle. They're unhappy. And of course, we know from our experience inside the church, outside the church, divorce is real. Broken relationships. Severed covenants. 50% of marriages for decades, supposedly 50% end in divorce. That's a real thing. That's a reality some of you have experienced, either for yourself or with loved ones. And so this subject of marriage and family, on the one hand, the ideal of it, it's awesome. But the reality is, in a sin-broken world, what hurts more than an unhappy marriage a broken marriage, broken children from a marriage. It's hard. That's the reality of living in a fallen world. If we take Genesis 3 seriously, the lens through which we see ourselves, our world, and all the marriages of it has to be honest. This is hard work. But here's the hope of the sermon. We're not left to our own strength or our own power to fix our marriages or our relationships. God is at work in His people and brings hope. And that hope is centered in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's that first promise of the gospel where He says, He will send one who will crush the head of that serpent. And that He would renew the family. There would be hope of another day because God was at work. And all the rest of the Scriptures are pointing towards the fulfillment of that promise. And that takes us to our third point. God is redeeming a people. And He is both calling them and empowering them to redeem all of life to His glory. And that includes marriage and family. So what was created with order and where sin brought disorder... If your faith is in Jesus, you have hope of reorder, of broken relationships being renewable. Therefore, our families matter to God. Our marriages matter to God. And here's where I would read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 6-3, but I already read that in the pastoral prayer. Where God shows that marriage matters. He, it's, it's not an Old Testament instruction alone. He reveals in His New Testament to His church through his, uh, his voice piece that husbands and wives still have a role and children have a role. The family has been defined by Him. And all those parts are able to fit together when Christ is our hope, when Christ is our Redeemer. It becomes a new archetype 
a new pattern of sinful, broken people learning to exercise faith and repentance and to be able to form a family that still images God and reflects His glory in the earth. The suggestion that the roles of man and wife and child are outdated, that they no longer apply in a modern culture, you have got to discern, especially you young people, you have got to discern whether or not you believe the Scriptures are true. You have got to discern that. We believe that they are not subject to time or to culture. This is the pattern. This is the archetype that God has given us in His Word. And our inability to live according to it, for me, given my biblical world and life view, is just further testimony of the truth of it. It's what we're made for, but it's what sin has ruined in us. But there's hope. There is hope if your faith is in Christ. Brian Chappell, in his book, I use it in premarital counseling, and I continue to use it even though it's getting old now. He has a quote where he says, The family, where each is for the other and both are for the Lord. Or if you have children, you could edit that and say, The family, where each is for the other and all are for the Lord. That's the covenant family. That's the family that God redeems and renews and empowers. That by faith and repentance, there's hope for knuckle-headed men and husbands. If their faith is in Jesus, there's hope for us guys. And there's hope for wives and mothers who I would never call knuckle-headed. Right? But you fill in the blank. And there's hope for children those little blessed additions to our covenant relationship that we call children, the fruit of our marriages, there's great hope for our children. The hope for all of us is to grow up in faith and repentance, believing God's Word, looking to Jesus, and seeing Him work change in every one of us through and through. Franklin Sanders has a chapter in a book. It's titled... Family practice, God's prescription for a healthy home. And here's a robust view of the family. Here's a redemptive view of the family that I hope will sit well with you. He says, Our families are one link in the covenantal chain of grace that reaches back to our first parents and that extends forward through our own children and grandchildren for a thousand generations. And that's always been the hope, is that God is at work showing His promise to be true generation after generation after generation. And so our prayer is, Lord, would you make our family a faithful link in that covenantal chain that shows your promise? And Lord, if you don't do it for me, would you do it for my children? and for my children's children. And sometimes that's the prayer. But God, do it. Do it in us and do it through us. That's what we're left to pray. Marriage and family, they are broken. All the components of it are broken. All the people of it are broken. But we have hope. We have hope that God is at work. He changes people. 
He fulfills His promises. And so we look to Him and we ask Him to fulfill that promise. We're going to close uh, with a hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. We've sung it before, but I want to make an application of it. So the, the, the hymn is, Come ye souls by sin afflicted. And it's a telling of the story of the gospel. But I want you to apply it to yourself um, in your own mind and in your, in your own heart in this way. Come ye souls, you know, come ye people. That's what that means, come ye people. But as we sing it this morning and as you pray it as a song, let's meditate on this. Come ye marriages by sin afflicted. Come ye husbands by sin afflicted. Come ye wives by sin afflicted. Come ye sons and daughters by sin afflicted. Come ye families by sin afflicted. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through Him alone. That's the power of sanctification. That's the power of the gospel. And it's applied to us. Let's pray that we would sing it, believe it, and experience it. Lord, would you use this hymn and the words of it, the singing of it, to work the truth of your gospel into our hearts. That those afflicted and ruined by sin have hope because of Jesus. Not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but for power to change. To see sin put to death. For men who have been silent when they should have spoken up. Men who should do things when they've done nothing. Lord, would your gospel empower us to change? For women who seek to control husbands. For women who don't want to be led by those men who won't lead. Lord, would you bring comfort and mercy in the gospel? Lord, for children who struggle to obey, who won't listen to instruction, who want independence. Lord, would you bring the hope of the gospel and the obedience that comes by faith? We ask this, we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.